Hello everyone, this is Ryan Willoughby with Habitat for Humanity of Georgia. It is February 25th, 2020. If you are listening to this podcast, you are listening to it as a supplement to our previous podcast, which was an interview with Scooter Courtney, the Executive Director of Flint River Habitat for Humanity. The reason we are recording this supplement is because unfortunately, due to a technical error, we actually ended up not recording some of the conversation that Scooter and I had. And since Scooter offered us a wealth of information, we wanted to make sure that we got all of that conveyed to you, the listener, because it is so valuable and it's so helpful that we would be remiss if we did not share all of that. So I actually took down a couple of notes as Scooter and I were speaking, and I'm now going to just kind of share those notes with you here in this podcast supplement. So it is not a full episode in and of itself. I would advise you to first listen to the actual podcast with Scooter, uh, listen to what he has to say there, and then come back to this so we can talk a little bit more in depth about some of the things that Scooter and I discussed, because that is the purpose of this recording. So the first thing to keep in mind about your restore, and we're just going to jump right in here. Um, the, the first thing to remember is that if your restore is breaking even, then your restore is failing. And I want to repeat that again. If your restore is breaking even, then that means your restore is failing. At the end of the day, the restore exists to serve the habitat mission. So mission has to be the driving component of your restore operations. And that means that mission has to be first and foremost. It needs to be on the walls. It needs to be on your bags or your marketing materials in the restore on the side of the truck. Whatever it is, the restore exists to make a profit so that you can take that profit and invest it in the mission. So at the end of the day, if your restore is breaking even, then your restore is failing. Some of the great things you can do to make sure that you are staying mission-centered with your restore, uh, again, having the mission posted out there, have information about your current partner families or current build events posted there at checkout so that customers can see those. Another thing that you can do to not only encourage people to participate in the mission, but also to make a little bit of additional revenue, you can ask customers to round up their donations. So if their purchase is $4.85, you can say something like, would you like to round that up to an even $5, get that extra 15 cent in there, and that will go towards your mission. Also make sure that your staff understand the importance of the mission, that they understand the mission, that they can convey to your customers just what Habitat does, how Habitat operates, and help explain to your customers the value of shopping at Habitat versus any other sort of thrift store location. So it's a very important thing that you focus on the mission at your restore and you remember that your restore exists not just to exist but to serve the mission and in order to serve the mission that means your restore has got to be turning a profit. Okay so let's now dive a little bit into how you can determine if your restore is turning a profit 
and if not, how to turn it around or develop some strategies to make sure that it is being utilized effectively. First and foremost, you need to know your numbers. You need to know what your gross receipts are. You need to know what your overhead is. You need to know how much you're spending, how much you are actually taking in uh, day by day at your restore. Um, one of the things I've noticed when talking with board members before, they've said, well, everything we make in our restore is profit because we're only selling materials that we donate. Well, just because you're selling things that have been donated to you, that doesn't mean that you are turning a profit. Because keep in mind, you do have the expense of a building, the utilities that go into running that building, the employees working at the store, insurance for the building, insurance for the employees, taxes for the employees. Even if you have a building that you have no mortgage on and that is run entirely by volunteers, you still have overhead expenses. And you need to calculate this expense to determine how much money you need to be making on a daily basis and on a weekly basis and on a monthly basis and, of course, on a yearly basis to actually turn a profit. Okay, And one of the things to do that is you have to look at your numbers. You have to look at what the total amount of revenue is. You have to look at the total amount of expenses. And you have to calculate where perhaps you are either in the black or where you are in the red and find out are you, in fact, making a profit with your restore. And don't forget as well to factor in the cost of people's time that maybe are not associated with the restore. If you as the executive director are spending a large quantity of your time managing issues related to the restore, then effectively you need to calculate that as a cost in your restore. And one of the things that you can do once you've determined that, let your employees know how much money your restore needs to be making every day. Tell your employees, we need to be making X thousands of dollars a day or X hundreds of dollars a day or whatever that is so that they have a vested interest in seeing to it that your restore is successful. Okay. One of the ways that you can calculate this, and th this is done inside of uh, the retail space, is by determining something called the price per square foot at your restore. So if you have a restore and that restore is 5,000 square feet, what you're trying to determine is how much money you need to make per square foot in your restore in order to turn a profit, whatever your desired profit is, 20%, 50%, whatever it is. So that means, of course, calculating your cost and then dividing that cost by the total amount of square footage in your restore. So, you know, if you've got a 5,000 square foot building and your total cost per month is, let's just say, $10,000, that means that you have to do the calculation of dividing the $10,000 expenses by the 5,000 square feet of your building square footage and that effectively means that in order to break even you need to be making two dollars per square foot so you think of that as kind of a model when sitting down and planning out how you arrange the store how you price your items how you are actually utilizing your space because the idea behind the price per square foot is to think of every square foot in your store as an opportunity to make money with your store. So you don't want to have dead space. You don't want to have large unused spaces within the store. Now you don't want the store to be crowded and junky and difficult to navigate. However, you want to make sure that you are 
optimizing every square foot in your store. And think of it, think of it and sell it to your customers, or excuse me, think of it and sell it to your staff members as we have got to make at least $2 on every square foot in this store. So when we are sitting around pricing out all of our items and we're wondering how much should we charge for this or charge for that, and we're going to get into pricing policies in a moment, but be mindful of the fact that you want to maximize the revenue per square foot. Okay, so this, again, it requires you to sit down and know your numbers, to share those numbers with your employees, and make sure that you are setting yourself up for success. So now let's transition into some very practical ways to actually look at your restore and determine, is my restore as successful as I would like for it to be? Or if no, my restore is not as successful as I would like for it to be, what are some ways that I can actually maximize my profit per square foot? Um, Perhaps I need to move my store. Perhaps I need to change my pricing policies. Let's dig into all of that and determine the best way to do things. First of all, it would be wise to have a restore committee and that restore committee should be made up of individuals on your board and from within the community individuals who are experts in the field of retail in the field of marketing in the field of real estate people who can provide practical hands-on knowledge and experience to you and to your staff on how to make your restore more successful so finding perhaps commercial real estate professionals finding someone who's a manager at the local Lowe's, uh, finding somebody who is a marketing specialist, finding those sort of folks and having them on your restore committee, having them do an evaluation of your restore, having them perhaps bring their friends or family to the restore as secret shoppers to sit down and say, here are the things I like, here are the things I don't like, here are the things to consider. That will be very, very valuable to you as you go forward in your restore, making decisions about how you want to do some things. Okay, because it's very important to look at your restore from a number of different angles. You need to look at it from the angle of a donor who is wanting to contribute items to your restore. You need to look at it from the perspective of a customer who wants to come to your restore and shop. You also need to look at it from the perspective of your employees. Is this a safe working environment? Is it a healthy working environment? Is this the sort of place that I can be proud that I work at? Because all of those things are going to affect the way your employees perform. So it's very, very important to get a diversity of opinion. And the best way to do that is to have a restore committee made up of individuals both on the board and also not on the board. So they can provide that sort of information that you need. Okay? Because there's certain things that you may not even really consider when it comes to your restore. Simple things like... For example, the sign out in front of the store. As you drive by the store every day or you go into the store every day, you may not really be paying attention to the sign, but perhaps your sign is not in a great location. You need somebody from outside who's not seeing that sign every day to look at it and say, how does this sign look? Is it clear? Is it presentable? Can you see it from far enough away? Can you see it close up? How does the area look around the sign? Is this a nice presentation that we're giving to the community? Are people able to see everything clearly? Are they able to get in and out of the building easily? Are they able to park easily? Is everything well lit? These sort of things 
are the sort of things that we as employees at Habitat can very, very easily overlook. A lot of times as we get comfortable at the store and we get used to being at the store, we oftentimes overlook things and we lose perspective on just what the store appears to be to those outside of the organization. So having somebody who can come in and do this kind of evaluation of your store and take a look at things is going to be really critical to ensuring that you're doing what you need to do to maximize that space and to make your store profitable so that it can support your mission. In addition to getting this diversity of opinions, I cannot possibly stress to you the importance of hiring good people to work in your restore. And when I mean hiring good people, I mean staff members that are experienced, that are competent, that are capable, that are good at communicating both with other staff members as well as with customers, people that are forward-facing, that are willing to sit down and go above and beyond to provide top-notch customer service, not just to the people who are in the store buying things, but to your donors, the sort of people that your donors would want in their home, that they would feel comfortable in their home picking up items, people that you're not having to look over their shoulder and wonder, are they taking things off of the truck? Are they pricing things correctly? At the end of the day, you want to have people in your restore that you can trust, people that understand your mission, people that are committed to your mission, and people that are going to go out and help you meet your mission. So this is very, very critical. And one of the best ways you do that is by setting clear goals for them and holding them accountable to those goals. So again, determining that price per square foot, you can sit down and determine here's how much money we need to make per day, per week, per month, per year. And you allow those employees to take ownership of those goals and say, if there are five of us in here and we need to make $500 per day to stay solvent, then we need $100 worth a day worth of sales every day out of everybody in the store. Something like that. You want to make sure that the people who are operating in your store, again, are committed to your mission, that they have clear goals, that they understand how those goals contribute to the mission, and that they are working and taking ownership of meeting those goals and ultimately moving the mission forward. Another very practical way to ensure that you have that is by having clearly written store policies. If you do have a restore, you should have a restore manual that is in addition to your personnel manual for all of your staff. Everyone working in the restore should be both familiar with your personnel manual as well as with the restore manual. Within that manual, there should be, of course, information related to how you price items, how you intake items, how you mark down the prices on items, and just general practical things like the time of day that the restore opens and when restore associates are expected to be at work. The restore opens at 9 a.m. Obviously, the restore associates need to be there before 9 a.m. So having that clearly spelled out in your restore manual will go a long way to ensuring that all of your employees understand what's expected of them and being able to hold them accountable. Since we're on the subject, let's talk a little bit about pricing inside of the restore because this is a, a fairly controversial issue within the Habitat world. And so we're going to talk a little bit now about different ways that you can price things. However, it's critical to keep in mind that you need to have a pricing policy. This, this pricing policy needs to clearly state 
how your affiliate is going to go about pricing the items that come into the restore. It does not need to be a willy-nilly, loosey-goosey process. There needs to be some sort of objective measure for determining how you're going to price items. If it's 50% of retail uh, as the starting price on the item and then it goes down in price by 10% every two weeks until you know it doesn't go any less than 25% of retail or however you want to do that, you need to have that pricing policy clearly, clearly spelled out. And one of the things that is oftentimes debated in the habitat world is whether or not you should negotiate with your customers on a given price. So if you have a sofa marked for $100 and someone comes in and says, I'll give you $75 for it right now, do you take that $75 or do you sit around and wait until somebody gives you 100 Now, it's my opinion, and I'm sure many people would argue with this, but my opinion is that you absolutely do not want to engage in price negotiation. It is important to remember that you are running a thrift store. However, you are not running a flea market. You're not running a junk shop. You are running a thrift store, a store that exists to serve your mission. And so even though you might have someone come in right now that wants to give you a lesser price, at the end of the day, this store exists to serve your mission. And when you sit around negotiating prices and treat things like it's a junk store, you're going to get junk prices. At the end of the day, you're going to cheat yourself out of the total amount of money that you could be making because you're so insistent on moving things quickly. Now, it is absolutely critical that you do move things quickly. However, you need to move them in a way that makes sense, that maximizes the amount of profit you can make because, again, the profit is going towards the mission. So having a policy where you say, Everything that comes in, we're going to price it this way. And then after two weeks, if it hasn't sold, we're going to mark the price down by X amount. That's a great way to do things. And a way that you can do this, that it makes sense to your customers, is to perhaps put a tag on something. Say, for example, our $100 sofa. When it comes in, have a tag that has the date that it came in, the price it is. Then have two weeks out from that, it's going to be $90. And then... Two weeks out from that, it's going to be $80. And show your customers how your pricing structure works. So if someone comes in and says, well, I'll give you $75 for it right now, the response to them is, look, in about four weeks, it's going to be down to $80. If it hasn't sold by then, you can come buy it for $80, not $75. However, I can't guarantee you that it's not going to sell between now and then. So therefore, if you want this item... You need to come and buy it right now. Don't try and wait four weeks unless you want to just take that gamble. However, I cannot stress to you the importance of not negotiating prices. Again, there's also a very practical human resources side to this. Um, You could deal with complaints from customers who are coming in saying, well, this person's willing to negotiate with me. This person is not. This person is negotiating with other customers, but they're not negotiating with me. This is a discriminatory discriminatory practice, and I don't like it. The best thing you can do is have a consistent policy, not negotiate the prices, have them set. Again, have them decrease if you want to over time, but please, please do not negotiate prices. However, in addition to pricing items that you get in on a donation basis, 
Um, it is also possible to purchase items and then resell those items at the restore. Habitat International does have a policy about how much of your total revenue comes from items that you have purchased. So you would do well to investigate that on my Habitat and also just do some general, I'm trying to find the best way to say this. However, it's also wise to do your research on these items that you might resell. Make sure you have enough of a markup, but not so much that you're pricing yourself out of the market. So if you are reselling something like paint or paint supplies, make sure that you're competitive. If these items are brand new, obviously you want to make more money than what you paid for them, but you don't want to price yourself so high that someone can't just walk down the street and buy the exact same item. You actually want to be competitive so that you can move these items and be mindful that you need to move these items relatively quick because oftentimes you're going to have to have paid for these items up front. You will have already come out of your pocket with cash to buy these items. So the longer they sit on the shelves, the worse off you are. So you want to make sure that you move them relatively quick. One way of using restore items, excuse me, one way of doing resale items that has become popular in recent years is purchasing refund crates from vendors such as Amazon and Lowe's. And, and this is where you actually go online, bid for a crate of items, and you pay a flat amount of money. That crate of items gets sent to you, and then you can then resell those items. These items are typically return items from these vendors. Um, it's stuff that they've collected over time, and now they're just trying to get rid of them. You can do really well with these items sometimes. However, you need to keep in mind, again, you are going to have to come out of pocket up front. You're going to have to account for the shipping of those items. You will have to account for pricing those items, displaying those items, marketing those items, and then selling those items. Some affiliates have done very well with that. Some affiliates have said, no, thank you. I don't want to touch it at all. And so it's one of those things that you need to sit down, do your research on, plan out accordingly, Determine how much money you're going to be able to make per item. Determine how you are going to establish your pricing of those items. And of course, developing some sort of marketing plan to make sure that you move those items as quickly as possible. So whether or not you're using resale items or purely donated items, one of the first and foremost things that you have to commit... <clears throat> so whether or not you're using resale items or donated items. One of the first and foremost things you have to consider when it comes to managing your restore is the issue of intake. Intake is whenever you're getting some new item to your store brought in and how you're going to handle that item. Again, you should have a written policy about this to make sure that these items are not just coming off of a truck and then immediately being sold, that there's some method of pricing them, evaluating them, accounting for them, etc. One of the best ways to do this is to have a separate area of your store where intake can be performed. This area would be off limits to your customers. It would be exclusively for volunteers and staff to be able to unload the truck, evaluate, or possibly even repair the items, place a price on them, and then put them out on the sales floor so that they can be sold to customers. One of the most common ways that fraud and waste occurs in a restore is with the issue of intake. It's when things are not being properly brought in, monitored, accounted for. So this is the importance of having an annual audit 
of having an auditor who actually goes into your restore, sees how items are brought in, sees how those items are managed and processed, and then ultimately heeding the suggestions on how to improve that process. Because intake is critical to making sure that you are getting the sort of items that you want to have at the store, that you are pricing those items accordingly, and that they are getting out in a reasonable amount of time. And of course, once items do come through your intake procedures, best thing to do is take your best and newest items, put those up at the front of the store. Make sure those are something that your customers see as soon as they walk in, that there is perhaps some signage saying this is a new item, that it's only going to be here for a certain amount of time. Um, Whatever the case may be, you really want to push these items, right? You want to make sure that things are not staying on the floor too long. And perhaps you have some old items, items that have sat dormant for a while that have moved kind of to the back of the sales floor. Constantly be circulating the items across the sales floor so that when customers are coming in, they're seeing something new. Um, ideally, you want to do this at least every every week for sure, but even if you can do it every day so that there's something new out front, so that there's something that draws your customers back in. Now, again, you want to make sure that you are not making the store look junky or clogged up. So you you want to have plenty of open space there for people to kind of navigate around. However, at the same time, you do want to utilize your space as much as possible. And one of the best ways to do that is to keep items moving around, putting them into new layouts. A lot of stores have had success with taking items in and almost having a kind of uh, diorama of some sort. So perhaps they have a bedroom that's set up so it's got a bed inside of it, it's got a chest of drawers and uh, things of that nature so that somebody can actually visualize how that would look inside of their home. Doing things of that nature and moving items around is a great way to keep your customers engaged. On a very practical side of things, uh, in addition to managing the restore and having customers come in your your door itself, um, keep in mind that it is perfectly acceptable to use things like eBay as a means to sell items. I don't believe at this point in time you can actually list items on the Facebook marketplace if you have a retail outlet. Um, Instead, you can use things like eBay, and I assume the Craigslist is still around. I I don't know, but um, eBay is a perfectly legitimate option. Um, You can, of course, post things on your social media account. So having photographs of new items come in, putting that up on your Restore uh, Facebook page, is a great opportunity to get some free publicity and marketing out to people. However, if you're going to do that, it's really important that you have consistency. And so the key to obtaining consistency across social media or across eBay or anything else is having one employee or volunteer who is exclusively dedicated to that activity. So the wording is always consistent. The photographs are always consistent. The lighting in the photographs is consistent. Always making sure that you are getting a consistent, clear, attractive image out there to your customers is the key to success using social media. You don't want to just open this up and have it a free-for-all for anybody who's coming in to volunteer that day. You want to make sure that it is somebody who understands your mission, who understands social media practices, who understands the best way to light an object, to take a photograph of it and put it onto something like Facebook. And so again, I cannot stress to you the importance of consistency. And the best way to achieve that consistency is to have a single employee or volunteer who is handling that. And of course, if you are going to sell items on some 
sort of marketplace such as eBay. Do keep in mind, of course, that when you price those items, you need to account for the fees that you may be paying uh, to that, that marketplace um, that they would collect from you once you make that sell. On another practical side of things, it is perfectly acceptable and uh, may actually be a good idea to look at the possibility of using gift cards at your store. Um, there are a number of vendors that you can find online who will make custom-made gift cards for you, and you can utilize those gift cards through your point-of-sale system. In our podcast interview with Scooter, he did talk a bit about their point-of-sale system. There are a number of options now available that will allow your customers as well as your staff to easily operate a point-of-sale system through an iPad or through an iPhone. Um, There are a number of those available. I don't like to make any sort of specific recommendations on those uh, simply because there are so many different features and they're changing so rapidly that it's best to simply investigate it for yourself and find out what is going to work best at your store. The final portion of this little supplement here to our previous podcast is I'd like to talk a bit about restore selection, and that is where you should locate your restore. Uh, A number of affiliates in recent years have decided to relocate or perhaps build or lease, and uh, there's a lot of questions that go into how should I move my restore? Should I move my restore? Should I buy a building? Should I lease a building? And so I'd like to talk about that in really a great deal of detail now. So the conventional wisdom a while back was that you should always buy your building. Then you have a piece of real estate, you can leverage it, you can sell it, etc. After a couple of years, the conventional wisdom changed to never buy a building. Always lease. If you can lease, you can get out quickly and move and go if the commercial tides change in your particular location. The wisdom now at this point is, should you lease or buy? Ultimately, it depends on your situation. There is no clear universal answer as far as whether or not you should lease or buy a building for your restore. Ultimately, that is something that needs to be carefully considered by your restore committee and by your board of directors. It means sitting down, working up a pro forma to determine what your costs of leasing versus buying are, what the benefits of leasing versus buying are, and determining at the end of the day, do you want to get into a long-term commitment that comes with buying a piece of property and then obviously maintaining that versus do you want a short-term commitment? Are you sure that you want to actually be in the same building for the next 20 years versus maybe we'd like to stay here for just a couple of years and see if this is really something we want to do? There are a number of factors that go into all of this, and so this is the importance of having a restore committee, of having those individuals on that committee do the research and determine what works best for your particular situation. When you are trying to determine that, there's a couple of things that you need to look at. Scooter talks about this in his podcast, and I'd like to just reiterate some of those right now. First of all, location. Successful restores are successful because of their location. In real estate, we always hear the term location, location, location. That could not be more true for our restores. At the end of the day, you have to put your restore in a good location. It doesn't matter if that store is clean and got great items and it's well-priced and everything is perfect. If it's in a 
bad location, it will not be successful. And so determining a good location for your restore means that you have to sit down and do some actual research. All right. And when you're doing that research, you want to consider a couple of things. First of all, you want to put your restore near your donors. You want to have a donor centric restore. That means you want to have a restore that is easily accessible to your donors, that is conveniently located to them, and that is comfortable for your donors. One of the uh, axioms of location for a commercial building is to say this, your customers will drive up to 60 miles to shop at your store. Your donors, however, will only drive up to two miles to donate to your store. So even if you have a restore truck and you'll go out and pick up from three counties away, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, you need to be as close as possible to your donors. And when we say donors, we mean the ideal donors, the people who are contributing high value items, items that will net the highest amount of profit for your restore. So this means typically putting your store in a nicer end of town where there's higher value real estate, closer to higher value, higher value residential properties, putting yourself in an area of town that is attractive to the sort of donors who are going to contribute the sort of items that you want in your restore. One of the situations that I've run into over the years at Habitat is I've had folks come up and say, hey, we want to move our restore, and we found a really great location for it, and it's a great price. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about this location. I'll say, you know, what's the other retail space nearby? And they'll say, well, there, there are no other retail spaces nearby. Well, that should probably be an indication for you as far as whether or not that is a good retail area. If there are no other retail outlets nearby, you should consider why is it that no other retail is placed near here? And the person may say something like, well, you know, we, we get a good price on it. And um, what makes us such a great location is that it's really near to our partner families. Well, it's great to have an office that's near where your partner families are. That can be very convenient. However, at the end of the day, you want to place the store near where your donors are because you want your donors to bring in items, items that you can then sell. So again, you're not trying to place yourself near where your customers are, not where your partner families are. You're wanting to place yourself where your donors are. Another thing that people like to um, to say is that they are looking to put their restore in an area that is quote unquote up and coming. That in the next few years, it's going to have a lot of development, that there's going to be a lot of inve money invested there. And so it, it, it's not a great area right now, but it's going to be a really great area later. Well, one of the things that makes a company successful is they tend to be on what either you call the leading edge or the bleeding edge. And the bleeding edge is when you are taking a considerable amount of risk with no guaranteed reward. So the idea that an area might become a great area for retail eventually is, in my opinion, not significant enough reason to actually go and invest in that area years in advance because you want to be on the leading edge yes you don't want to come in once the real estate prices have become overly inflated but you don't want to be on the bleeding edge you don't want to go out there and invest a large sum of money and time and energy 
into a piece of property that you're not sure is going to actually get you the return that you're looking for. So if you're looking to invest in a property that's in a quote-unquote up-and-coming area, wait until that area has actually started to come up a little bit. Give it a little bit of time. Let some of that area develop. Let other people be on the bleeding edge. Let some other retail operations come in there and see how successful they are. If they prove to be successful, follow behind them. But don't feel the need to be the vanguard and go out there and and get this piece of property because you're getting such a quote-unquote great deal on it. Maybe it is a good price, but the reason it's such a good price is because nobody else wants it. So that's something very important to keep in mind. Uh, Just some other things about getting a building whether you're deciding whether or not we should buy or lease. Keep in mind that it is perfectly reasonable to lease out portions of your building. I believe Scooter discusses this a little bit in his podcast. If you can, if you have the option, it's a great thing to do. If you can lease out portions of your building to someone else and allow them to use some of the building, maybe make some capital from that to actually reduce your overall uh, cost burden. It's an excellent thing to do. Keep in mind, of course, that when you are Uh, subleasing or at least leasing out some of your building to someone else that that does come with certain responsibilities insofar as building maintenance and collecting the lease money and everything like that but it is perfectly reasonable to do some other just practical matters to consider as your committee is getting together and deciding whether or not some building is a great location for your restore certain things to look at things like bathrooms Does it have plenty of bathroom space? Are those bathrooms clean and orderly? Um, Looking at the finishes inside of the building, what are the condition of the floors? Are they clean or can they easily be cleaned? Are they, you know, comfortable to walk on? How does the paint look? How is the condition of the facade on the outside of the building? Is it um, dirty old brick that needs to be pressure washed or is it, you know, wood siding that has termites in it? It's worth looking into and finding out. You know, taking a look at things like the parking situation. Is there ample parking for this size building? Can you get into and out of the parking easily and conveniently? Can you see when you're pulling out of the parking lot? Or are you at a blind corner where you pull out and then all of a sudden there's a vehicle right on top of you and you almost get T-boned? Those are the sort of things that you need to be looking at because your customers are going to be looking at those things when they come to your store making sure that your store is well lit, making sure that there is lighting on the outside of the building, that there is lighting on the inside of the building, that the store is bright, that it's inviting, that people feel comfortable there, that they feel like they can go out to their car at night and they're going to be perfectly safe. That is very, very important to your customers. People need to feel welcome. Another thing to do, make sure that your store has a single point of entry and exit. The fewer doors you have, the fewer opportunities you have for people to commit theft. Um, it just makes good sense to have everybody coming in one single entrance way. You can, of course, have a, a back exit that your staff use, but for the most part, you need to have a single point of entry. So checking on that when you're looking at a building is a great idea to do. Another thing to look at, keep in mind that oftentimes you might be getting items in that are coming in on a large trailer or perhaps an 18-wheeler. So does your facility have a roll-up door or a bay where a large truck can pull into and that you can easily unload items? Does it have plenty of storage space for you, or are you going to have to start placing items outside? 
Another great thing to do when you have a drop-off area or an intake area, does it have that area covered? Is there some sort of awning or protective covering so that your donors and or customers can enter the building or drop off an item and not get completely soaking wet? Those sort of things are really critical to look at. The final thing that you might want to consider, and it seems almost kind of silly, but it's very important to keep in mind, any building that you are putting your restore in should have air conditioning. We do, of course, live in the south. The temperatures get very, very extreme here. So putting your restore in a building that has air conditioning is going to be important because, again, you want to make sure that your building is inviting, that it's the sort of place that people want to go to, it's the sort of place that employees want to work at. And even though it might seem kind of like common sense, believe it or not, it does happen that we have put restores in buildings that don't have air conditioning. And one of the things that uh, those restores have said later is, we seriously regret that decision. So making sure that you have air conditioning, if you're looking at purchasing or leasing a building and it has air conditioning, there's nothing wrong with getting a professional out there to evaluate that air conditioning system in advance. In fact, it's recommended that you do that, that you spend the money to investigate the electrical system, investigate the plumbing system, make sure that that building is going to be suitable for your needs. Because maybe you're getting it at a great monthly rate simply because it's not a well-maintained building, which means that you're going to be spending a lot of time and a lot of energy fixing problems over and over again. However, I wish to reiterate once again that these are the sort of things that your restore committee should be looking at. These are the sort of things that they should be doing when they do a cost-benefit analysis of your restore and whether or not your restore is performing where it needs to be, whether or not your restore needs to be relocated. You've got to take into account all of these factors, and there are so many different things to be considerate of. So with all of that said, again, I want to thank you for listening to the Hand Up podcast provided by Habitat for Humanity of Georgia. I hope that you have found this podcast, as well as the previous podcast with Scooter Courtney, very informative. And if you have any other questions about how to relocate your restore or maximize your restore operations, always feel free to reach out to us. Thank you.